0: I'm Maria Wilson. And I'm Danielle Mandikian. And we are scientists. We love science. Yeah, we do. So when we aren't doing it, the next best thing is to talk about science. And what's really awesome is that we're surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in research. So there is always someone interesting to talk to. But there's never much time just to chat at work. That's why we are so excited to be hosting this podcast. We're going to step away from the labs today to talk to other scientists about the cool stuff they are thinking about, working on, and imagining
1: as well as how some of these discoveries just might lead to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk
0: Into a Bar. The show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Hi, everybody. I'm in the bar today to talk to two experts in Alzheimer's, Jasi Atwal, a neuroscience researcher, and Ed Teng, a physician scientist in neuroscience. Like many of you out there, I have a personal connection to this subject. My father had Alzheimer's disease. And one thing I remember about the beginning of that journey with him was when it became really apparent We were staying in Tahoe in a rented house, and he was never able to find his way around this house we were staying in. He could find his way around his own house, and he could find his way around my house, even though he hadn't been there frequently. But it became so obvious that he'd lost the ability to make new mental maps and form new memories of his environment. And so we're gonna dig into a little bit today about why that happens. So welcome, guys. Thanks.
2: Super excited to be here.
0: How do we define
1: Alzheimer's disease? Could you, Jassy, describe that to us? So Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disease, and there are several neurodegenerative diseases, which means that they're diseases where neurons are dying. It's sort of a progressive disease where over time there's more and more damage that's happening. And Alzheimer's disease in particular, at least pathologically, can be defined by the presence of a couple of hallmark pathologies, which includes amyloid plaques and tau tangles. And clinically, yet how is it defined?
0: We define
2: it more by its manifestations. So traditionally, the way we have defined it has been deficits that starts with memory, specifically episodic memory, and then gradually, as disease progresses and as the pathologies that Jazzy has talked about spread to other parts of the brain, it can affect visual spatial function, it can affect language, it can affect decision making, multitasking. There are, it's, it's more common in older people. Women appear to be at higher risk than men. It tends to travel with other diseases like hypertension and hyperlipidemia. Cardiovascular risk factors seem to increase the risk as well. So it's a constellation of symptoms. And there's a pretty strong genetic relationship as well. I think the strongest link, apolipoprotein E, and especially the E4 allele, but there's multiple other genetic risk factors as well um, to the point where if there is a first-degree relative in your family that has Alzheimer's disease, like you're talking about, sorry, but this means that that you're probably at much elevated risk compared to someone who doesn't have a first-degree relative.
0: I have not yet been brave enough to go get my uh, genetic done because I don't want to know if I have the (laughs) APOE4 mutation.
2: I have Alzheimer's disease in my family as well, and I am also, at this point, not interested in learning my, my APOE status. But I do think as we get further along in personalized medicine, we're presuming that people with different genetic risk factors may respond to different therapeutic interventions. I think once we kind of figure out that, and especially if we're in prevention mode where we have interventions that might help prevent the disease and people at risk then I'll be super interested.
0: So it is hard to have the genetic information and for it not to be actionable. So Jassy, do we know what's causing this damage to the brain? I mean, is it even possible to study how neurons are gonna die?
1: So in terms of what happens in Alzheimer's disease in the brain, the information we get is a lot of looking at brains at autopsy. And so it's kind of an end stage. And what we see is that there's been a lot of cell death so the brain itself is actually quite quite shrunken and shriveled. And we do see that there's a lot of glial inflammation at that time. But like I said, that's end stage. So what happened at the beginning? How did it start? And we don't have a full picture of that, but it may start, before you have this loss of cells, it may start by actually some damage at the synapses where the connections are happening, where the connections between neuronal cells are actually taking place, that those synapses are becoming less functional. There could be some problem in cellular transport of vesicles and other proteins, and so things are kind of getting, again, a little bit glommed up and slowed down there. And uh, I think we do see evidence for neuroinflammation again starting out pretty early. So I I think it is quite multifactorial and we don't have a full handle on the exact processes that take place, but by looking at at what's happening in some of our cell culture models. We're trying to understand that a little bit better. What are some of the earliest stages of the disease and what's happening and how how does that synaptic loss then, for example, lead to eventual cell death? And how do the different players, the different cellular components of the brain play into that? Because
0: we know that memory is is caused by, we remember things because we strengthen certain synaptic connections in the brain, right? And so this is obviously not happening properly with Alzheimer's. So that's what you're saying, is there's some kind of pathology early which is to do with the neuronal function um, at the level of the synapse?
1: Right, and I think especially, for example, then in development of new memories where the model for that that we have in the lab is this long-term potentiation, development of long-term potentiation, strengthening of, of certain synapses and certain connections that maybe that starts to become defective. Maybe, again, maybe the connections physically are starting to disappear or the strength of those connections is, is getting reduced. And again, of course, once you have cells lost, then it's harder to make those pro- the proper connections again. I noticed that from
0: my sort of up close experience with Alzheimer's that the mem- first of all, you can't form new memories and then old memories start to go away. But the memories that go away first are the more recent ones. Was that just my observation or is that what happens?
2: That's kind of what happens. Yeah. And I think when we think about neurological symptoms, it's location, location, location. And the reason why we see that recent memory going first is because that recent memory is really subserved by the hippocampus and the medial temporal lobe. And that just happens to be where the Alzheimer's disease pathology tends to concentrate at the earliest stages of the disease. And then as as the pathology spreads outside the temporal lobe and starts affecting other areas of the brain that are important for language or visual spatial ability, those are when those kind of deficits occur. And it really isn't the pathology Itself that specific, but it's where the pathology, the parts of the brain that the p- pathology affects, that that manifests on the sur- on on the outside. And it for starts patients.
0: in the frontotemporal in, in in the um, hippocampus area you were saying, and then it spreads outwards.
2: I think in the most common, yeah. the most prevalent kinds of Alzheimer's disease that we see, that's where it starts. But what's particularly interesting is that there are other rarer manifestations of Alzheimer's disease that start with language dysfunction or start with visual-spatial deficits. And in those patients, what you see is actually the pathology, specifically the tau pathology, actually starts in the parietal occipital cortex for the visual variant or in the perisylvian language regions for the language variants of Alzheimer's disease. So there really is this intersection between both pathology and location that mushes together to create the clinical picture that we see with patients.
0: And so these older memories that, are, that an older person have, the one they've had for a long, long time, those are spread in different parts of the brain so they don't get as damaged? There's...
2: I think the idea, and you're asking me a question that I actually spent most of my thesis on when I was getting my PhD. It's a
0: fascinating question. So
2: the idea <laughs> is that the hippocampus and the medial temporal lobe are important for the acquisition of memories and also for some period of time as memories consolidate, yeah. almost like while the glue is setting, yeah. for maintaining those memories. But over the longer term, the idea is that those memories are distributed in circuits in other areas of the brain, the other areas of the cortex, and they're no longer dependent on the medial temporal lobe and the hippocampus. So you might imagine if they are stored as patterns of activity cortically, why we see those longer term memories affected later in the disease is that they don't get disrupted until the pathology gets to that area of the cortex where they might be stored.
0: So this explains to me why with my dad, while he was, he was, His short-term memory and his memory got worse and worse and worse, but he actually never got to the point where he didn't know who we were. Like those memories were still there. I know for some families, one of the most distressing things is when their loved one stops knowing who they are because those memories, even those very, very deep memories have been lost. Jassy, you mentioned tau tangles and beta amyloid plaques. What is the current thinking on these two pathologies and how they cause disease? Where
1: are we on that? Yeah, I think there's been this debate between the Taoists and the Baptists for a long time, as well as those who don't believe in either of these, right? We've known about the pathologies and the molecular components of what's present in plaques and tangles for quite a long time, but it's taken us a really long time yet to translate those into therapies and then test them in the clinic. So I think that... I don't know that the debate is fully settled, and I think for Tao... Again, even though we've known about it for a long time, we've been somewhat limited in the therapeutic approaches we've been able to take. And so we have in the clinic now some, some, um, some monoclonal antibodies against tau. But I think, again, to really test the hypothesis, we need to try to tackle tau, and in particular, the tau that's inside of cells, the intracellular tau, and tackle those tangles using even newer technologies and newer approaches. So I think the jury's still open.
2: Full disclosure, I think I started my career as a Baptist. We call them Baptist because it's beta amyloid-tist. Cute. Um, And I worked on a lot um, on models and treatments that were really focused on amyloid. And I would say that early on, the Baptists were winning most of the time. And that's really reflected in the kinds of therapeutics that have been tested in, in phase three trials thus far. But ultimately, I think we're always going to have to become multi-denominational because there's, there's multiple targets.
0: I think that's where the field's going these days. So people who, are, who think that, um, the, that the, both the Taoists and the Baptists are wrong, what do they? what's
1: their favorite hypothesis? I think vascular dementia is, is one that comes up. And I think, again, as we talked about this being a disease of aging, the the fact is, like, a lot of things are, by the time that patients are getting diagnosed, a lot of things are starting to go wrong in the cell. So, and it's, and, you know, part of the reason that people are, don't believe that, for example, A-beta is involved is it is possible to have a lot of amyloid accumulation. There are some people that accumulate a lot of amyloid and don't develop some of these symptoms, these cognitive symptoms. So again, it, it probably is sort of the development of the combination of different factors.
2: I'd also say there's another school of thought out there that's really focused on neuroinflammation. And the question is always, hey, are amyloid and tau, are they causing the neuroinflammation? Are they a downstream result of the neuroinflammation? There is also, there have also been some theories that maybe historically had been more fringy that it almost focused on infectious disease. Um, is it a certain virus or a certain bacteria that, that causes it? Those results have always been relatively inconclusive, um, but the broader category might simply be that there's a lot of different ways to cause neuroinflammation. And if neuroinflammation is the key driver of this disease, which well, still remains unclear, that's why we keep on looking at all these smoking guns left, right, and center that don't quite turn the pan out because it's not really, that's not really the gun. It's the bullet that, that determines what happens, the neuroinflammation.
0: What about the impact of COVID and the intersection with Alzheimer's disease? Some patients with long COVID are, are purporting this sort of brain
1: fogginess and stuff like that. I think that, the, um, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see what kind of findings come out of, of studies and, and even, again, maybe some autopsy brains, et cetera, um, from patients that have had COVID. I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing early on is that neuroinflammation, just as you said, definitely pops up again. And um, I think this idea that neuroinflammation is associated with this brain fog in different, in different types of um, circumstances is something that's, that's becoming apparent as well.
2: I can certainly imagine, given that Covid seems to have so many inflammatory aspects to it that the heightened neuroinflammation that comes along in these patients that do end up contracting Covid nineteen probably accelerates or or facilitates the kind of damage that's being done in Alzheimer's disease. I think it's going to be a really active area of research, as as Jazzy alluded to, as as we get more and more information and as we tra- as we pivot from simply figuring out how to stop people from getting COVID to to learning more and more about what happens long-term with COVID to, to really see what those interactions are between COVID, neuroinflammation and other neurodegenerative diseases. Cause it turns out that most of the neurodegenerative diseases have some component of neuroinflammation as well. And whether that's the piece that ties them all together has been this tantalizing possibility that folks have talked about for a while but it's been really, really difficult to prove.
0: That's really interesting. So moving back to the core biology of Alzheimer's itself, Jesse, what other types of biology do you think are exciting for new therapies in the disease?
1: I think that um, there are a lot of new avenues to be very excited about. I mean, while we're still trying to sort of flush things out with A beta and tau, and I still think we have some things to do there, one of the areas of greatest interest recently has certainly been microglia. So microglia are considered the immune cells of the nervous system, of the central nervous system. And I think much like the peripheral immune system, they're considered to have both good and bad roles. And they're certainly known to be quite active in neurodegenerative disease. And so there's a lot of investigation going on right now about trying to use therapies to modulate their function um, during disease. And I think that's it's gonna be just really, really interesting to, to see how that whole field develops. So that's, that's one area that I think is really interesting. Is this analogous in any way to cancer immunotherapy where you're modulating the immune
0: system to, to um, prevent um, cancer growing?
1: I think it, 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 it there's some analogies. I think it's the, so the idea is that, again, I mean, we've talked about these toxic aggregates that are forming um, in neurodegenerative diseases. And one thought is that these glial cells can come in and help clear some of that up. So you, you want them to have some level of activity and be active in getting in there. But there's also some potential damage that could be done if these immune cells are overreactive and they're releasing a lot of more sort of cytotoxic um, cytokines. I think one of the most interesting things is that in the genetics that's been done for Alzheimer's disease, as well as some of the other neurodegenerative diseases, a lot of the hits that come up tend to be genes that are expressed in microglia. So we know that they're very important. Um, but exactly how to modulate them. Are they not active enough in disease? And do we therefore need to upregulate them or are they actually having some toxic effect? I think that, that's where it's gonna be really you know, tricky and sort of an, an active area of investigation and could also be that you need them to do different things at different stages of disease. That's, I think, one of the challenges in clinical development
0: ed, right, is when do you intervene?
2: Yeah, I think it's particularly tricky and that's the word Jazzy just used, with Alzheimer's disease, because the disease does evolve over time. As we were talking about earlier, some of the earliest stages of disease is when we have the accumulation of amyloid plaques. So you might imagine that the interventions that we would try to do at earlier stages would really focus on amyloid plaques, whereas the tau tangles and some of the other neuropathology that comes around later, that might be more appropriate to target later rather than earlier. Microglia are an interesting case because they might be not quite active enough at the beginning and maybe too active later. So as Jazzy suggested, we're still trying to figure out, are we supposed to increase their activity, decrease their activity? Is it different early? Is it different late? Um, Right now with our our clinical diagnoses, amyloid's been the real focus because the idea traditionally has been for Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases that the earlier we can intervene, the better chance we have of doing something meaningful. And that probably comes back to your initial question, is this like cancer? Probably, right? Because we talk a lot about cancer, hey, the earlier detection, earlier treatment, better outcomes.
1: Along the lines of what you were asking earlier, other biologies that I think are also of interest, there's a lot of things, other things that I think that are popping up, as you mentioned, things like metabolism, things like, the microbiome and how all of I, I think there's a lot of interesting science out there right now, again suggesting that there are a lot of interactions between what's happening in to the brain and the rest of our body. And I think that at the moment it's not entirely clear exactly how we would use that in terms of therapeutics, but I think these are again important biologies for us to understand better. And I think for patients and maybe the general population to take into consideration because at the moment when we don't really have therapeutics to give to folks with Alzheimer's, when I'm when I'm talking to some of my friends and they ask me what can we do, I, I what I like to tell them is, you know, try to live your healthiest right now, <laughs> like exercise and eat well. And and I think that again, through the science, we will understand a little bit more about how these different factors also play into modulating disease pathology.
2: There are a lot of epidemiological yeah. studies out there that emphasize exercise and antioxidants in the diet. The challenge always though with sort of interpreting those is that the people in those studies that do better, the, it's not that all they did was eat blueberries and that's what made them have a better outcome. So I think there's a lot of different things that are interrelated. When I talk to patients and their families or just older adults in general, we do you have some general principles for healthy aging? So staying mentally active, staying physically active, staying socially active, all those things are important. It's kind of use it or lose it in that kind of way. Great.
1: And I think, Ed, you brought up something that I I guess I brought up a little bit too um, when I was talking about some of the pathology in the brain, but aging is the biggest risk factor for these neurodegenerative diseases. So that's something, that we know, and I think, um, again, not entirely clear how we can use that or to, to try to um, reduce or slow down some of these neurodegenerative diseases. But I think the more we learn about aging, is, uh, that's also an important component for what's happening in these diseases.
2: I think one of the things with aging is that as our brains get older, they just don't respond as robustly to insults. And I I think the sort of gradual insults that accumulate over time with Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases, as patients are older, their brains are less and less able to deal with them and sort of self-repair. I think the other thing that comes up when, Jazzy, you talk about aging is that we often think about Alzheimer's disease or these other neurodegenerative diseases in isolation. Like, that's the only thing that's happening to the brain. But it probably isn't. Um, when they have done pa- neuropathological series in patients that have passed away and donated their brains for those kinds of studies. We see that while Alzheimer's disease is very common in those brains of the people that died, th- that died from memory deficits and dementia, we see a lot of other pathologies as well. Um, we see a lot of vascular pathology. In fact, when you look at some of the biggest series, Alzheimer's disease is involved in most patients, but the biggest block is not the pure Alzheimer's disease patients, it's the patients with mixed Alzheimer's disease and vascular disease changes in their brain. It's not quite clear how those interact, whether they're additive or synergistic in terms of causing greater dysfunction, but it certainly is quite common to see both pathologies.
0: So it's even more, what you're saying is it's even more complicated and challenging perhaps than we than we originally thought when you look at the, the complexity of the disease. What about like frontotemporal dementia and Lewy body dementia, are those separate types of diseases?
2: So they are separate types of diseases, both clinically and neuropathologically. But there's certainly overlap and there can be misdiagnoses as well. So frontotemporal dementias, as the name implies. Uh, occur when there's neurodegeneration in the frontal and temporal regions of the brain. It, those come in two flavors of frontal temporal dementia from a pathological standpoint. The m- two main causes are excessive tau deposition or excessive TDP43 deposition. But then they also come in three clinical flavors. There's behavioral variant frontal temporal dementia. That's when the social part of our brains starts to deteriorate. So. <laughs> those patients become socially inappropriate. They say things in public that you really shouldn't say in public. They do things in public that you really shouldn't do in public. Things that we've learned as social norms, they're no longer able to follow. Then there's a couple language variants. Um, there's the non-fluent version as well as the semantic version of frontal lobar degeneration. And those patients either have trouble getting words out, expressing themselves, or they have trouble understanding what has been said. They have lost the meaning of words for the semantic variant. And then dementia of Lewy bodies, that's kind of on the spectrum between Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So those patients have some Parkinsonism, they have some memory deficits as well, but they also have a relative unique characteristic of a fluctuating level of consciousness as well as visual hallucinations. And those patients tend to have, as the name implies, deposits of Lewy bodies in their brain as well, which are thought to be a a different protein that accumulates in the brain, alpha-synuclein.
1: And another thing that turns out to be different is even though the same protein's aggregating in those different diseases, now that we're able to get really detailed ultrastructural details on those aggregates, we're seeing that the aggregates are forming in different ways. So, surprisingly, the tau is aggregating a little bit differently in the FTLD patients than it is in Alzheimer's patients. Now why that's happening, we're not exactly sure. Is it maybe because it's in different cells, or there's different cofactors or components that are happening in one context versus the other, or different triggers? Um, is still not clear, but s- so it is very interesting that some of the same pathologies show, show up and yet they manifest in different ways.
0: That's fascinating that it's the same protein but in a different cell, a similar sort of destructive pathology, but it's doing it in a different way. That's really, really
1: interesting. And I think that's also one of the things that actually for us um, gives us some confidence in trying to pursue some of these proteins. So for example... We don't know are these, when we see these deposits in a brain at autopsy, it's very difficult to know if they actually had a role to play in the causation of the disease or the progression of the disease, or are they just some end state product of the disease. And if you try to treat them therapeutically, it won't make a difference. But I think one of the things that, for example, drives me to think that tau is really important is that we do see it in these different disease cases. and. I think the upstream trigger can be different. So in Alzheimer's, it could be that the A-beta is upstream and really sort of triggering then some changes to the tau protein that make it aggregate, and in other disease cases, it's something else. But in the end, you have these tau aggregates, and and I think that commonality suggests that it really is important in the, in the the toxicity that develops. This
0: question just came to me. Do we know what tau does when it's not, gumming up neurons and making making you have,
1: have have a brain deficit? What is its normal role? Do we know? That is a great question. So tau was originally um, discovered and is described as a microtubule-associated protein. MAPT is its other name or the gene name standing for microtubule-associated protein tau. And it can help to stabilize microtubules, but it's interesting in our studies of trying to understand what its function is, people have made knockout mice where they've knocked out the tau gene. And by and large, these mice are actually fine. So it doesn't seem to be essential. It could be that there's some other microtubule stabilizing proteins that are compensating for its loss. But um, it is it is curious. I think, I think we, we don't fully know if, if that's its primary role or it's serving some other roles in the cell, it's still a little bit unknown. Interesting. Just um, microtubules are like the little tiny, there's like the scaffolding
0: inside the cell, right? And I would imagine they're very important in neurons because neurons have these long
1: axons. Exactly, so neurons reach very long distances in our body and they're important for helping relay some information, right, there's um, transit along those microtubules of, of various vesicles. So they are absolutely very important, and you might have thought that if you got rid of something that's a microtubule stabilizing protein like tau, you might have really dramatic consequences, but any phenotypes that have been discovered actually seem to be pretty subtle.
0: So maybe there's a lot of redundancy built into that system, perhaps, because it's so
1: important. That's right, Yeah, very,
0: very interesting. I just wanted to pivot a little bit because when we were thinking about treating Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative disease. We have to get the drugs into the brain, don't we? And I know this has also, Jassy, been an area of focus. And I know that you've been working on clinical programs of drugs that we have to get into the brain.
1: What's the challenges of getting medicines into the brain and how do we do it? Yeah, so there's something called the blood brain barrier, which protects our brains. You know, it's thought to sort of protect it and keep the homeostasis um, in the brain by preventing too much interaction with things that are out in the periphery, be that some of the immune cells, um, some contaminants that might be out there. So, so the, the brain is considered a sort of immune privileged um, organ in, in our bodies. And while it's certainly there, I think, you know, and it probably has evolved to be there for very good reason to protect our brain, it does pose huge challenges for for trying to get drugs into the brain to treat diseases. And so it makes the brain uh, impenetrable to, or, you know, largely impenetrable to a lot of the different therapeutics. And we've done a lot of studies. Um, This is true for both small molecules as well as large molecules like antibodies. And it's not that you can't get anything across, but normally it gets across at very, very low amounts. It's, It's really kind of inefficient. And so we have been, and others in the field have been trying to look at ways that we can try to boost the amount of drug that we get into the brain, in some cases by taking advantage of some receptor systems that are present on the blood-brain barrier that are normally serving to transport other molecules across. If we can try to hijack those those molecules to help allow our therapeutics to get across a little bit more efficiently, I think that's one one way of trying to of uh, trying to get over that barrier.
0: It's kind of like those revolving doors and you have to fit So if you can make something that fits into one of those slots, you can like shuttle it
1: into the brain. Very cool. And then there's also, I think, you know, now that it's interesting, there's, there's um, also some therapeutics that are being delivered a little more directly to the central nervous system. Again, maybe through the spinal fluid and so that's one way to gain access. But of course, these approaches are more invasive. And so if possible, we like to stay away from those. But we are seeing a little bit more of that type of um, approach being taken with certain molecules in the clinic.
0: For my last question here, I wanted to ask you kind of a sort of double question, which is, why did you get into this field of research? And also, where
1: do you see it going or hope to see it be, say, 25 years from now? So I've. Always been interested in science, and I think sort of the um, the curiosity factor there, the the problem solving that's involved in science, and so when I started to think about going into science and what particular field I'd want to go into, somehow I was very attracted to the brain, just because I thought it's the most complex organ and it's so um, important for so many things in the body, especially you know all I guess conscious decisions. And so I was just really attracted to the complexity and the challenges, I guess, with trying to understand it. And so that's what got me into neuroscience. And then in going into um, an area of of trying to figure, you know, I guess my earlier research was spent on understanding more about developmental neurobiology and as neurons are forming, what helps them stay alive, what helps them grow and make connections, and then a progression from that for me was sort of thinking about as neurons are starting to encounter toxic insults or disease state. What can we do, maybe based on the knowledge of what's going on in development? What we, what can we do to try to boost their health and protect them in disease states? So that's what got me into it. Thinking into the future, I'm I. It's you know it's it's a it's a tough thing. I mean I think that. Um, advances in treating neurodegenerative diseases or any diseases of the brain um, it's been slow right so so our progress is very slow but i do hope that in say 25 years we have a better understanding of the disease processes that we have some therapeutics that we can that we can use um, to help intervene and help with slow down the progression of these diseases I think that in addition to neurodegenerative diseases, I also am quite fascinated by the psychiatric diseases and the aspects of what makes the brain, again, work in certain ways and yet it's so sensitive. And so I also hope that in the future actually we have a better understanding of those diseases and again how we can sort of intervene and and help in those kinds of areas. What about you, Ed?
2: So- I'd love to tell you that, oh, I thought from when I was a young kid that this is what I want to do. But really, I kind of wanted to be a race car driver. So, this is a little bit off, off, path, off path for that. I think for me, it actually all started when I was an undergraduate. As an undergraduate, you have to take classes outside your concentration, uh, outside your major to graduate, right? And I took a Psych 1 class. And I learned about memory and the medial temporal lobe in that class. There's a famous patient, H.M., who had damage to both of his medial temporal lobes and had a really dense interrogate amnesia. And his case really fascinated me, fascinated me enough to when I I got to grad school, I ended up working in a lab that looked at what happens when you have damage to the medial temporal lobe. So I was really focused on memory. And for the longest time when I tried to explain this to my mom, she's like, oh, you're working on Alzheimer's disease, right? And she would tell all her friends, I was working on Alzheimer's disease. But I wasn't actually working on Alzheimer's disease. But at some point, I gave in and said, fine, I'll work on Alzheimer's disease. Mostly because there's a lot more of those patients around than patients with really specific damage to the medial temporal lobe. And worked for a long time on the other side, the academic side of the fence, on Alzheimer's disease and dementia and memory impairment. But how I got here was, and I know we say this every five years, like, but this is really the time we're expecting some breakthroughs in Alzheimer's disease. And five years ago, I'm like, this is really the time we're expecting breakthroughs in Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I made the transition from academics to industry to be able to participate more directly in bringing those advances from the laboratory to the clinic. What I want for the future? It's a little bit selfish because there there's a pretty strong family history of Alzheimer's disease in in my family, both on my mom's side and my dad's side, and in my wife's family. So, what I'd really like, it doesn't have to be designed by me or approved by me, but better therapeutics for for Alzheimer's disease treatment and hopefully prevention so that however long it is from now that I might need it, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, that I got something I get to take. So, you know, for very selfish reasons, I'm rooting for my own success and Jazzy's success and all the researchers in the world's success for finding better treatments.
0: I'm with you um, as well, with a, with a similar family history. So, yes, let's let's hope that, that we really do get to a place where we both understand this disease a lot better and have and have better ways to treat it. Thank you so much for coming to the bar to talk to me today. It's been such a pleasure to learn so much from you.
2: Thanks, Maria. Enjoy talking to you and having these refreshing beverages. Yes. (laughs)
0: Thanks, Maria. Cheers. Cheers. Hi, Maria. Hi, Wellington. Hi, Maria. Hi, Stephanie.
1: Fascinating episode.
0: Wasn't it fascinating? I have so much respect for people who embrace the complexity of neuroscience. So, a little bit about me. In school, I studied the developmental biology of the endocrine pancreas. And what's interesting is a lot of the same genes and pathways involved in neural development are involved in endocrine pancreas development. But when something goes wrong with the endocrine pancreas, while it can lead to serious disease like diabetes, it doesn't have that same level of impact as when our neurons are impacted. So if something goes wrong with your neurons, it starts to get more existential, impacts personality and our very idea of what makes us us. Neurobiology scared me. The endocrine pancreas was about as complex as I could handle. So I'm really glad that people like Ed and Jassy and others in the field are bold enough to go there.
1: Maria, we love the conversation so much, we didn't want to interrupt. But now that we're here, we did have a couple questions. Early on, Ed mentioned um, episodic memory. Uh, are there different categories or labels of memory that maybe I don't know or maybe i had forgotten?
0: So this is not my area of expertise, but I think what, what may you're asking about is maybe how do we remember different types of things? And yes, I think there, there is memory for facts, memory for spatial awareness, emotional memory, right? So different categories of memory. That's about as, uh, as much as I know about it. Maybe we need to get Ed back and, and ask him again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think my question, Maria, was uh, around neuroinflammation. I, I actually didn't think that there was an immune system functionality in the brain.
0: So the brain has its own um, immune, immune system in, in the glial cells. Um, but there is, I think, more and more evidence that systemic immune mediators can potentially get into the brain and influence it as well um, It's an emerging area of research. I read a really interesting book. It's called Brain on Fire, um, a bi- bi- biography of a woman who developed um, acute psychosis and personality changes that were ultimately diagnosed as being caused by an immune response within her brain, antibodies to, uh, to, to neurons. Just showing that, that an immune response can lead to um, um, psychi- psych- psychiatric or mental diseases.
1: Interesting. So let me ask you a future question. Do you think that our learnings about how the brain works will come before or after we discover treatment?
0: That's such an interesting question. And it makes me think of some of the um, historical experiments that Ed was alluding to, where a lot of what we've learned about the brain has been because of injuries people have had to the brain or diseases of the brain. So I think it's going to continue to iterate on itself. right? If we can ultimately Imagine, you know, you, learn how you can treat Alzheimer's and you start to change the, the progression of the disease, that could potentially teach us more about how the brain works. Um, so yeah, I think it's gonna be an iterative process that the treatments will give us learnings and they will feedback to help us understand the normal function of the brain as well.
1: Before we go, Maria, let's take a question from the grab bag. Here's a question from Cheryl W. Are there any efforts to ensure that all populations historically underrepresented, like low income or or minorities, have access to information so that they can be included in clinical trials?
0: So that's a fantastic question and one that's close to my heart and something that I'm involved with um, improving. Um, Now, this may not seem directly related to Alzheimer's, but the fact is that the people enrolled in our clinical trials across indications may not always reflect the broader population. And the trouble is, is if you have enrolled a patient population in your clinical studies, that's not representative of the epidemiology of the disease, like the, 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 the representation of the, of the populations that suffer from the disease, you could both miss an important medication, uh, miss, miss an important efficacy signal, and also potentially miss an important sort of safety signal as well. So it's very, very, very important that clinical trials represent the populations that you're ultimately trying to have your medication serve. Um, there are lots and lots of efforts ongoing to address this. In fact, we have two conversations on this topic with experts in the field coming up because it really is so timely and so important. You know, as scientists and um, clinicians, we really want the medicines and the research we do to represent everybody who's suffering from the disease. Um, So we're very much looking forward to having these conversations. And that's our show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a show and leave us a rating. If you have any questions, please write to us at podcast at gene.com. That's G-E-N-E dot com. And now for me, it's back to puzzling over data.